Hey everyone, this is Ashley Day here. I'm the Senior Community Manager at Team 17. What you're about to hear is a, a recording of an interview between myself and Villa Gorilla, the developers of Yoku's Island Express. This recording was originally intended to be part of a podcast series, uh, a little bit of an experiment for Team 17. Um, so far, that series has not materialized. It may do one day. But, you know, I thought now might be a good time to release this interview anyway because uh, Yoku's Island Express has just been nominated for a Game Award at THE Game Awards. It's nominated for Best Debut Indie Game. And if you want to vote for the game and, and help it get more recognition, help spread the word about open world pinball platforming, um, I definitely recommend going to thegameawards.com and uh, casting a vote there. It's up against some stiff competition, some amazing indie games, uh, so it really cannot win without your help. But as, as a little treat, as a little celebration of uh, the award nomination, I, I thought it'd be great to release this uh, interview, give you some insight into the development of Yoku's Island Express and the amazing people behind the game and their, their history, how they got into games development, who they are. Um, so, have a listen and stick around till the end uh, and I'll, I'll be back again at the end to speak to you again uh, because I'd, I'd very much like to get your feedback so uh, we'll have a chat about that at the end. If you make it all the way there you can find out how to tell us what you thought about the in interview. So let's, uh, let's crack on, let's have a listen. See you in about an hour. Senior Community Manager at Team 17, and I'm joined by Jens Anderson. Yes, hello. And, hello, and Matthias Sneek. How do you do? Uh, from Villa Gorilla. Yes. Uh, so Villa Gorilla are a Swedish developer. We are live in Stockholm right now as we record this, <laughs> and you guys are working on Yoku's Island Express. Right. Right which is uh, it's one of our games coming out in 2018 and is probably the most unique game I've ever worked on. Glad that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely unusual for us as well, at least for me. I used to do first-person shooters. Like, that's, that's my experience working in the video games industry. So going to something like this is very different and very exciting. Using all your expertise to do from first-person shooters yeah. to do open world like, pinball. You know everything about tweaking the look and feel of a gun and like the shooting experience, and then going to pinball is <laughs> a big step. But it's yeah. So it's that's one. that that is a dramatic shift hmm. in game design and in careers. So let's um, let's before we talk about Yoku's Island Express, let's take a step back and go to the beginning. Uh, let's go right to the beginning. Tell me about your birth. <laughs> I remember it clearly. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd be interested to know, um, as I would anyone making video games for a living, actually, like where did where did it start? Um, I, I don't think there are many people working in making games who don't love video games as a medium. So, can you remember first time you saw a game, first time you played a game, first time you realized, wow, this is this is the thing I love. Um, I, I I remember early things that I played. I mean, I'm, the the Commodore sixty four was the the big thing when I was very little, and I had yeah. friends who had it, 
and I watched them play games on it and I was blown away by that stuff back then. But the stuff that I got at home was these uh, game watch things, you know, Donkey Kong and a game oh, watch yes. with the fold out thing. It's an orange thing. You fold it up and have this little game on it. So I think that was the earliest sort of video game experience that I had. And what kind of an impression did did those games make on you? Um, I, it's hard to tell. I mean, I, I was uh, I was played a lot of games. I always did, but I didn't back then. I didn't think that I would be making them though. Mm. That was not the the focus. I was always interested in the visual uh, visual arts, in any form. So, but um, combining that with video games wasn't something that I thought that was possible. Like I was, oh, I struggled to come up with ways to find a career path for me. Like how do you <laughs> how do you get a career out of drawing things? And I think okay, so there are illustrators out there. So I, I guess suppose I should become an illustrator. So that was my main goal, like breaking into some sort of illustration field. Cool. And how about you, Jens? Well, for me, I think I, like computers started before video games for me. Like, um, I guess I had some. I had some neighbors and friends who had like pre Commodore sixty four video game consoles. I don't know what they were. Like, I guess someone had a NES and stuff like that as well. Uh, and that was obviously super cool. Um, but for me, it was my father who brought to home a, a swedish built abc 80 right um to do bookkeeping for his little company um that i got to play with and there were some games on there but you know it was such a crappy computer um and you had like it was just the the experience of interacting with the computer and and trying to get everything to work that sh should work but didn't. So you're you're a programmer now by trade. Yes. So is it is it true that you you, you developed a fascination of programming from a young age? More oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I started like I think I was eight when he brought that home, and uh, along with it came a book of like this is how you interact with the computer, basic. So the like language basic. the language yeah. basic. Mm -hmm. uh, so like that was how you started to play around with the computer was to to do some programming. So um, that was obviously super interesting. And then video games came a few years later when um, I bought a Commodore 64 uh, and my parents weren't really super keen on video games. So <laughs> I had to buy it myself. So I, I, um, they had this kind of uh, uh, forestry thing uh, in the nearby village <laughs> uh, and uh, kids could come there and help clean clean the young plants of trees uh, as a summer job so i did that for a summer and then i bought my commodore 64 and then then it was gaming did, all the way did you, did you buy it with a tape deck or were you lucky enough to have a disk drive um i don't think i ever had a disk drive for the commodore 64. no as it was tape so i don't think tapes. the disk drive existed even at then oh, okay. so it was all the Tape it's an interesting time for a lot of um, people who became game developers because, of course, if you buy a games machine now, if you buy an Xbox or a PlayStation, you can use it to consume games. Yeah. But with the microcomputers in the 80s, you could it was a two-way process. You could consume and you could also create on those systems. So I think a lot of people who started out in the, the kind of that era in the, around the 80s really lucky because the the opportunity was was right there in their homes to 
make yeah. things. No, absolutely. And and there wasn't enough content available for mm. you to consume even. Uh, like, it, like today, internet is infinite, pretty much. And like there's always more games or whatever yeah. for you to try than you can consume. So, But that back then, it's like, hmm, okay, I've done all this. What am I supposed to do now? So wh- where did it go from there? How did you guys um, kind of break into the industry? It took me quite a while, I think. Mm. I was uh, on track to be an artist and illustrator. So I went to art school and I uh, tried to get freelance gigs as an illustrator and I worked from pen and paper role-playing games and things like that. Uh, so I was sort of building a career in that niche, mm. I, I thought, <laughs> uh, for a while. But um, then I got contacted by uh, an art director at Starbreeze at the time. So, And he offered uh, me a job as a so concept what, what artist. what year would this have been? 2004 or 2003, maybe. Okay. Something like that. So Starbreeze around that time would have been working on the Riddick? They were games. just finishing up the first Riddick game. Okay. Uh, that's that's when I was brought on. So we, j- just when we were starting the darkness, that was when uh. I came on board. And were you were you doing concept art or yeah. in game? No, I was purely a concept artist. I only worked in two D. Um, so and I had really no understanding of how engines worked or any of the the language that's used. So I remember like the early lunches when I went out to have lunch with the new programmer guys and I couldn't understand, I could understand like every other word in a sentence. It was so many new concepts and abbreviations and like internal little, yeah, it's like their own language. That's when you realize that you should stick to the art people when you have lunch. Right. Yeah. But I kept at it though. So I, I think I'm fluent in that, in the mumbo jumbo language now, at least enough to to get a pass <laughs> on the lunch. So you, you learned a lot by, were you working in the Starbreeze office alongside other yeah, developers? Yeah. So you so must I have was, learned so much. I was in-house and, uh, and yeah, it was really a steep learning curve there at the beginning. But then, yeah, so I flailed around a little bit there with the concept for that one. And as it brought on as the only concept artist, so there was a lot of work as well to, to do. And The Darkness was based on a comic, right? So were you, were you working with collaborating with the comic artists to was uh, there a style guide you had to stick to <laughs> no surprisingly no there was no style guide they were very lax about we could we had free reign to do whatever we wanted that sounds unusual yeah and they actually encouraged it they i think they they were they felt it was a good thing to get sort of a creative injection into that uh the ip so whatever we did they they gave thumbs up and yeah so those guys were really easy to to to, to work with so we redesigned a lot of the stuff that was in the in the comic that eventually made it back into the comic. So there was sort of ah, okay. back and forth there. Uh, yeah, and also made a, a special issue of the darkness as part of the promotion for the game. So I got and you, my, you did the arts on, yeah. on that. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. So you're also a comic artist. Yes, as well I am. As a that video was, game that's artist. also like one of my early ambitions that I should actually do comics. That's another thing that I, I, I growing up, I read a lot of uh, visual novels like. Uh, Dave McKean is a huge inspiration of mine who did um, some covers for the Sandman and he did a bunch of other stuff so I looked at his, his things and I thought I want to do everything that he's done <laughs> and that's one of them like doing a comic so Sandman and the darkness none of this screams pinball platform adventure about <laughs> a dumb beetle but we'll we'll get to that yeah um how about you Jens how did you get into the industry 
Um, well, I I met Matthias at Starbreeze, but I started there way earlier. Um, I actually started like the industry in, in the game development industry in Sweden is sort of quite a bit built on the demo scene. Yes. Uh, so I was briefly a part of the demo scene where we did these kind of computerized presentations trying to do all these kind of cool stuff mm. um, you and i were talking about the amiga at lunch today yes. um and i i was um i mean i work at team 17 if we don't love the amiga then we've done something wrong but yes i was a huge amiga fan in the 90s and i think for, for anyone who wasn't there at the time it's probably quite hard to imagine that that split in the kind of stuff you would consume that you know obviously a lot of great games but mm -hmm. there were also these things called uh, demos, which you would, uh, you know, if you were really rich, you would download them yourself from like, bulletin boards and yes. what have you. But <laughs> most people would get them from like, shareware houses. You would like send off, um, you know, for me it was you'd send off a pound coin in the post and somebody would send you back a. Oh, wow, is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, you know, sometimes they come on many floppy disks and you, you'd see these incredible um, animations set to music often. It's like a music video, like yeah. two to ten minutes long and, and just doing crazy stuff with the computer. Yeah, they really pushed the hardware yeah. to their limits. And it, it always felt to me like um, Sweden was, was doing a lot of the craziest stuff in those days. Yeah, there were a couple of, like the Nordic countries mm. uh, was like, it's interesting. You can look at sort of the map and see how like the the elite, as they were <laughs> called, like the elite demo group, groups. Uh, moved from country to country. I think it's in Brazil now, actually. Like, there's still a, a demo scene. Uh, but it, it seems to be a cultural phenomenon based on, like, uh, computer literacy and accessibility to to hardware and stuff like that. But anyway, like, here in Sweden, uh, it was fairly big, so uh, we didn't have the, the mail system because we had these uh, demo parties instead. Mm. Uh, so there was a bunch of them each year, and I think you, Matthias, went to to a few of the, those as well, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I was was part of organizing one or two of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I did so as well, and and that's like a lot of my friends in the games industry here in Sweden are from that era, uh, and they have all these kind of cool jobs all all throughout Sweden nowadays at Dice and mm. Massive and Avalanche. And well, I think the great thing is that if you're a programmer trying to push yourself and push the hardware to mm -hmm. make these amazing demos, that lends itself quite naturally to becoming a, a extremely competent video games programmer. Oh yeah, yeah, you're, you're pretty much, from a programmer perspective uh, at least, you're solving the same problems uh, doing demos as you do video games. Now, like, it's different now because the, the complexity of demos was kind of equal to the complexity of games back then. Um, today that's not true anymore, like games are way, way, way more complicated, mm. uh, so you run into different issues, of course. Um, but so it was in the demo scene that I uh, I got to know Magnus Högdahl, who was the who founded Starbreeze. Um, so when he did found Starbreeze, he brought me on. Uh, um, so we were a group of six people origi originally, I think, um, and that's how I got into the games in games industry. Basically, started making video games based on people from the demo scene. And um, what was what was the first actual game you worked on? The first I worked on, or the first that was released? <laughs> uh, let's, let's do both. 
we started working like we had this ambitious idea of making uh, a first person uh, fairly open world role playing game kind of like skyrim the problem was that we were like six people originally i think we grew up to 10 uh, and we had no experience of, of finishing a, a project so uh, magnus is this fantastic uh, programmer doing like uh, amazing technology this was during the time where uh, quake was released like the first true 3d 3d gaming uh, engines uh, came out uh, as, and we were really up there on on the edge in terms of technology uh, state of the art uh, so it was very technology driven we had less experience doing gameplay and stuff like that so it looked very pretty uh, it wasn't much of a game and we worked on it for a year and a half or something when it got shut down by the publisher uh, one pub a bigger publisher bought our publisher and then they sort of reevaluated the project and decided that these guys are probably not going to finish this which might have been a, a good uh, line of thinking. Well, can cancel games are interesting because I think from a consumer perspective, we always wonder, oh, you know, what a shame that this great concept, you know, never came to be. Yeah. And there, there's many, many reasons that games get cancelled and probably many cancel games we've never heard of. Um, but from a developer perspective, um, although it is a shame, it's not time wasted because you probably oh. learn an awful lot mm, through the process. I guess, but it's it's so 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 painful. Yeah, <laughs> and it feels like so so much time wasted, and especially since it's usually tied up in all this legal crap. Uh, like, even though the publisher said, "Okay, we're not going to do anything with this," it doesn't mean that you can keep it and sort of mm. use that to build your next project. You pretty much have to start from Starting scratch. Again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I would certainly suggest that the you know the process of being in a small team and working on something mm -hmm. extremely ambitious probably too ambitious by by the sounds of it <laughs> yeah. saying that's a really valuable lesson for indie game developers um in terms of you know managing the scale of your project oh absolutely yeah what a small team can achieve yeah yeah and it, it takes a long time for a team to be efficient as well like putting Ten people together in a room it's gonna take them a long time before they really start to, to groove together mm. um so iron out like responsibilities and who really knows what they are talking about and the passions and everything so that takes time and obviously that's stuff you can bring with you and most most of us uh who were there for the like starbers at the time we were completely out of money so everyone went down to the unemployment office oh, no. uh, the same day, pretty much, and it's like, yeah. So that's not a good memory at all. Well, it was, it is oh, actually, right. uh, because it was this kind of bonding kind of thing. We were this kind of family and it, okay, this is how we solve this together. We go down there, say, uh, we don't have any income. Um, we want to make another game but we won't have a prototype for our next game ready for another four or five months. Uh, what do we do? And they pretty much said, well, uh, you can start looking for a job, but hey, you're an artist or whatever. <laughs> uh, it's a good chance you won't get any, so keep working on your game and, and we'll see. So uh, different people did uh, 
different solutions for it, but we managed to stay together and, and develop a prototype that became, in the end, became the game Enclave that we did release. Ah, yes, yeah. So the taxpayers funded the pre-production of that game, you'd say. In some way, yes. <laughs> uh, through the social security network. Lovely. Wonderful. Mm. No, but we managed to get a prototype together, and then we found a new publisher, and then we really learned how to make video games because we didn't know anything still. Mm -hmm. uh, but we finished that game, and, and after that, I think, is when we felt that, okay, now we sort of understand what it what it needs to finish a product project. Um, and, and how long were you both at Starbreeze for? Did you, I mean, you obviously you joined at different times. Did you leave at different times? Yes. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. I think it was there eight years. Okay. Something like that. So you would have worked on. Obviously, you mentioned the darkness. Yes. And Jens, you would have worked on the Riddick mm -hmm. games. Syndicate. Yeah. No, so I, I finished out Enclave, I finished out Riddick and The Darkness, and at the end of The Darkness is when I left, so I was there for 10 years, but you kept going for for longer. Yes, it almost escapes me now how long, but uh, yeah, I stayed on for uh, Riddick Assault on Dark Athena, just like a semi-sequel to Riddick, it wasn't really a proper sequel, but an extension of Riddick, a remaster of the original one. Um, and then for Syndicate, for yeah. the better part of that one. And then, um, so you, obviously you two have become good friends. You've been through yeah, many... So, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it depends on I, the day. One must assume, as you are now uh, running a studio together. You are business together. partners. I, I oh, don't yeah. know. It's different now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you went away and did um, different things. So Jens, is that when you went to LucasArts? Yeah. So So... During this whole time, from when I started at Starbase, I was 100% a programmer, but um, we didn't have dedicated designers there, so we sort of helped out on that. And during my time at Starbase, I slowly transitioned more and more into design. So for The Darkness, I was almost 100% design. I was the lead designer on The Darkness. Um, so when I left, um, I left Starbase, I did some uh, some. Uh, stuff on my own uh, but then I started working for LucasArts as a lead designer there um, moved to San Francisco for about four years and Matthias when you left Starbreeze yes what, what was where did you go I did some freelancing um, I, I went back to doing a little bit of what I used to do actually some uh, print illustration mm -hmm. um, a little bit of stuff for like National Geographic and some role-playing games as well, back to that. And I did some special effects work on some films and commercials. Oh, wow. Um, but, and then I went to Italy for a year as well to study art at a, at a, like a really old-school type of art school where there's only natural light and uh, you work in charcoal and you spend five weeks on a drawing meticiously copying a, a plaster bust of some old wow so even, even though you were already a fully qualified professional artist you were, you still felt always time to go back to school oh, and yeah. learn more no, I, it was wonderful to to learn how they do that thing it's like an interesting uh, like a rebirth of that traditional sense of drawing there those old techniques that they they only use the traditional tools there is no like photography involved or anything like that you measure things very carefully with strings 
and you, you stand at certain spaces on the floor and you measure things and it's all very particular and very exact and you spend a lot of time on each drawing to get the very almost photoreal um, results mm. so uh, so it was good to learn that technique and and how to approach that and did you did you go there with any particular career objective or was it more i just want to try other things and develop as an artist yeah no, i just wanted to try other things and uh, i'd love to do something like that again if mm. there's a good opportunity like maybe not go back to that one but maybe do something completely different i i love sculpture as well so i'd love to do that learn a little bit more you can always learn more it's always fun and interesting to to dig yeah. deeper into something and really be able to devote to one thing. I mean, working in video games, it's always a st the st stress is always a factor. You have to be quick uh, and efficient. Mm. And as soon as something starts to feel like, yeah, okay, this is looks passable, then you need to sort of drop it and go to the next thing that looks like total disaster. So you continuously move really fast through everything. But here you could take a step back and just really sink into one particular thing. That's that's quite a luxury to have, I, oh, yeah. I think. Um, and. Do you, do you have that thing that a lot of artists have where um, you never, you, it never feels finished or you you might always see the flaws that other people don't see because they're not so close to it. They don't have the vision that you have in your head. Um, it depends. Sometimes when you stop at the right moment, when it, it still feels fresh and interesting, I think the, the picture has a life of its own and it's it stays fresh like for a long time mm. if if I work on something for too long then I almost always kill it for myself like I, I don't like it anymore yeah. when I'm done You're like you, you get too particular about things and you, you sort of you block off all the opportunities that was there before because you had in your yeah. head like it could go anyway it could be become any sort of masterpiece so like the that. essence is lost yeah and then it gets lost gradually as you refine it of course I mean that's a natural part of it but if you leave it something a little bit rough then I think some of that sort of initial magic is still there. How does how does that compare, Jens, with programming? Because I think from my perspective, programming is, and I'm sure you will correct me. Um, I'm sure I will. <laughs> programming is, is almost a process of um, puzzle solving yes. in a way. Uh, you have something you want to achieve and there's probably a right or a wrong way to achieve it, but also maybe there might be a creative way oh, to achieve it. Yeah. Um, I actually think it's very similar. Um, well, maybe not like when you are done, that kind of uh, what you talked about there, but just in general, how you get from point A to point B, like the how you sort of... I, I sometimes see it as sculpture even, like yeah. you have this kind of vision and it might be a very specific problem or it might be like this idea of of a feature or something like that uh, but like build build like the base structure of it and then refine it and then just making all these decisions on how specific you want to solve whatever problem you're working on like how um, there's so many decisions on the way uh, of what you're doing and and you need to take those decisions at the right time as well. Like there is no way you can sit down and write. Well, I guess some people can, but sit down and write the specifications. This is exactly what I wanted to do and, and how it should work. That's usually a terrible idea yeah. uh, because along the way you will learn so much about the problem 
Uh, so you want to course correct and and refine and evaluate. And then like um, we are making video games, so it's it's not a very it's not a digital. It works or it doesn't. It's um, especially like the gameplay mm. code. It's how it feels. It's how it feels, and like you don't want to spend too much time working on something irrelevant. So it's a very organic and dynamic process, I think, with programming. And that's when it's most interesting as well. Like then fixing bugs as well, uh, fixing bugs, that's, I guess it's the same for art there as well. Like you want to get it, like get it removed from, from the list of issues. Um, but the creative aspects of programming is, is the f- most fun part. And, that, and that's probably why you said you started out as a programmer, mm-hmm. but you also eventually became a, a designer. Yeah. That's probably quite a natural thing to happen because the, the, the thought process of trying to yeah. problem solve through programming, yeah. that is design. Um, it, it's one type of design. Like uh, every every designer is different and every designer is basing his thought patterns on, on whatever his, his experiences. Like obviously when I think about game design, I come at it uh, from a very technical perspective, yeah. like uh, a problem-solving mindset. While Matthias, on the other hand, come come at the problem from a very visual or nar- narrative perspective. Mm. I guess maybe maybe well, that's good. You never put it like that before. It's nice. So you're you're probably both designers on, on Yoki's Island Express. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah we share a lot of. It's sort of a staple. I I like to think for for Villa Gorilla in, in general, like. Um, Kind of same as as back in the days early Starbreeze where we didn't have dedicated designers uh, because we sort of assume and expect the team to to contribute contribute to the design as a group. It's mm. a very becomes a very consensus driven process, which has its positives and negatives, yeah. of course. It works in a small team. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and you know, Matthias didn't mention, but your uh, Later days at Starbreeze, you transition more and more into design yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So I changed uh, roles. So we both have, you know, done our like mastered our crafts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh um, no, but gotten fairly good at, you know, me good at programming, Mandia's good at painting. Uh, but like making video games is much grander scope. So learning how to do that and then sort of form up into Villa Gorilla, where we can sort of go back to our roots mm. and just know that we can help out on all the all the big picture stuff. came from so sure um as, as we established um you'd moved to lucasarts you're mm-hmm. in san francisco matthias you um went to italy for a year um and stayed and worked on art for all kinds of other media um you know films advertising role-playing games um how did you guys reunite and where did the idea of forming a studio come from I don't remember when we first started talking about it, but it's been... I remember. You remember? Yeah. 
I messaged you, yeah, saying, you, I guess you are also moving back now. <laughs> How about we meet up? Yeah. If, for me, well, like I, I worked at LucasArts for about a year and a half, and that was a weird experience, fun, but weird. But I decided to start my own company instead. So I did that for, for a couple of years in San Francisco until I got a kid, and then I wanted to move back. Uh, and I really liked working on smaller projects, was the experience I took away from there. Uh, but n not super small, so small that it was only me, which was my previous project. Um, so when I decided to move back, I decided that I wanted to make something a little bit bigger, uh, have a smaller team. So I reached out to Matthias uh, when you moved back and to check if he was interested in doing something together. And then we sort of took it from there. Yeah. Yeah, I remember talking about this, whatever we want to do, the scope has to be small enough so that only two people were needed to finish the project. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, like, it was a very sensible way of approaching it. And that's, I think, the, maybe for us, it was definitely the right size or right mindset to get started anyway. Yeah, and also like the picking a project uh, I remember like specifically like we had a bunch of ideas of what we wanted to do like we have a surprisingly similar taste in and, and experience in in video games like what games we like from our childhood and stuff like we both played team 17 games mm. and another world oh, yeah. is like b one of our favorite games for both of us uh, like there are a lot of consensus in what what good games are uh, but we needed to find a game that that sort of we could pull off and uh, obviously we, we don't cover the whole development spectrum of, of what we what's easy and what's hard um, and like the joke here is we didn't have an animator so we made a game about a ball <laughs> um, but we had a, a, a couple of projects to choose from but the the idea of a mixing pinball with more adventure stuck around mm. uh, so it was it it sounds like to a certain extent the idea may have been born out of necessity um based on the, the you know the limitations yeah of, of what you knew you could achieve as i I, I don't think necessity is a good word i no. i think that's just good design like design what you're good at doing right um and every development yeah. team needs to think like that like it builds to your strengths yes I think it's yeah. interesting because probably if you um, if you just sat yourself at a table and said I'm going to have an idea for a video game now, and you sat and thought about instead of thinking from the start of you know what are the tools that we have, who are the people, um, you know what what's achievable within mm -hmm. the the band that we operate in. If you if you took the other approach and went right to the end and just imagined the finished product. Probably your thinking would um, revolve around already established concepts because that's yeah. You know, easier leap for your brain to say maybe not you. <laughs> no, I want a game like World of War, World of Warcraft, but you can do anything. Yeah, exactly. that's the pitch. I've heard that pitch a couple of times. Yeah, um, and and I think probably if you thought about things that way, you would never come up with the idea of a pinball platform adventure. Maybe. Mm. Where did yeah. it come from? 
So you were, sa- you were saying that you you liked the idea of a ball because yeah. you didn't so, so the idea it. The idea of mixing pinball and adventure came from a friend of mine oh. uh, who we talked about that idea for a while and that sort of stuck with me. I actually asked him for an okay before moving forward on this, uh, but he had had this idea of stringing uh, segments of, of pinball together. Uh, and like, so that came, came um, we put that on the table as yeah. something we wanted to explore and, and we did sort of did our research, what's been done in this space before and, and what would we do with that sort of direction? Um, and it became sort of evident that we, in, in kind of what direction we wanted to take it, make it, uh, uh, give it a little bit more adventure feel, like really utilize mm. Matthias' skill with creating a beautiful world around it. Um, yeah, we felt that, that there was a lot of things that we wanted to do that hadn't been tried before. And also that the, the sort of the initial pitch, like the, the way we talked about it as an sort of open world pinball, which maybe not be 100% accurate, but it was, Certainly, the the way we, we thought about it, how do we create that, and what are the possibilities within that sort of that simple statement? That's that's the sort of the, the, the little box that we gave ourselves to explore and, and experiment in. Hmm. So I think that that was sort of the core strength of the whole the idea initially. Yeah. Were you pinball fans particularly before this? I enjoy pinball. I'm not yeah. a huge like die-hard pinball player mm-hmm. not in any sense but i certainly enjoyed a lot of pinball maybe in terms of hours mostly on the computer i think i played a lot of physical pinball as well but yeah mm-hmm. pinball dreams oh yeah yeah Again, right here in Sweden, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 no the the game that formed dice yeah, yeah. um so no actually i think when you when you look at pinball as a video game genre mm-hmm. um You've kind of got two camps traditionally you would have the stuff kind of like the pinball illusions and pinball dreams mm. where they were they were creating original tables that didn't exist in the real world but they were still simulations of a traditional pinball experience in most cases you could mm. probably take that table and produce a working physical version yeah but then you would also get um kind of more more from the kind of japanese side <laughs> you, you would get um, there was like Revenge of the Gator by Hal Lamps on Game yeah. Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kir- Kirby Pinball and um, oh, my memory fails me now. We played but, a lot of Gator actually. Uh, That's well, a good example. Yeah, yeah that was one yeah. of the earliest ones. No, yeah. but there are weird ones like good. this RTS uh, Pinball Odama. combo. Yeah, Odama on the GameCube. And then you had to use the voice controls. Mm. Um, and there were a couple on PC Engine, right? Um, the Hudson. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, De- Devil Crush. We looked at a lot Alien of them at, at YouTube because we didn't like we are computer guy. We had Amiga and Commodore sixty four. Right. We didn't have the consoles, <laughs> so we missed out on a couple of them. But like, what became really clear is that there there hadn't been a lot of serious attempt at at leveraging mm. like the the physicality. Like, just pull out what's interesting with the physical based gameplay. And, and put that into a good game in general. Like a lot of uh, a lot of the attempts were made to take the pinball experience and, and try to shoehorn that into something something else, like link to action, link to levels together, or stuff mm-hmm. like that. And and that was not what was interesting to us. Uh, 
for me specifically i you know physical based gameplay is inherently fun like and and using like the flippers to shoot balls that's inherently fun uh, so i do enjoy pinball uh, as a game form but the the pinball tables they are so designed around the restrictions of having a physical space that's very limited and they are cramming all this kind of content like mechanics and stuff into it and it becomes very complex it becomes very twitchy it it's a very competitive style of gameplay mm, arcadey i think yeah arcadey probably, but but also com- also were. competitive like yeah. it's, it's high score driven uh, and that doesn't really interest yeah. either of us. No, and we we went we tried we did a lot of experiments early on what this was supposed to be and uh, as the well, the fun things the things that sort of sort of resonate were those that moved away from that hard line like hardcore style of gameplay. So we 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 softened the approach quite a bit as we went along and, and found that the, the adventure bits. Those merged really well with the pinball and the sort of the exploration and the world that we built and the pinball. That was sort of the mix. That was the key to getting we, a good experience. And we also realized a lot of the this like what the decisions that are made for pinball are because of the restrictions. And we don't have, for example, a restriction on physical space, so we don't need to cram tons and tons of complexity into a smaller area. We can have three or four smaller areas with like a few mechanics instead to solve all the confusion that's in, in like you need to play the game for an hour before you start to understand anything for a for a regular pinball table mm. and and that's not okay and we also had like things change as well when you can ha- add other types of mechanics that you can't do in the physical world like uh, pickups like mm. that's really hard to do in a physical pinball table like uh, the ball would stop rolling <laughs> they had little things attached to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, so the, like, it changed quite a bit on the way from the the first prototype was very much a, a pinball simulation style attempt of like, can we replicate what's fun about the digital pinball table? Yes, that's mm-hmm. easy. Yeah. So where do we go from yeah, there? And then you can stick two of those levels together and see what that feels like, and then you have you have that. But it still wasn't what we were looking for. Yeah. So it took a it took a lot of experimentation there. It, yeah, it took a long time until we found the sort of basic pacing, the core loop, whatever you want to call it, of of having smaller sections of action gameplay, and then you go out and have a, a breather with mm. sort of controlling our Dun Beetle Yoko um, directly, and you know, sort of control the pace a little bit instead of being thrown into the next action sequence mm. constantly. Uh, actually. Um... I think the game does have a really great sense of pace because it really fluctuates between um in some ways it's a bit like uh a sonic the hedgehog game mm-hmm. to me to, to pick probably the closest example where sometimes you'll be taken on a little rail and you'll you'll fly around at great speed and you'll collect things and that might only be a couple of seconds but you get a real thrill out of doing that but then the pace will slow down and you'll be taken into a contained area where um, you have much more control over mm-hmm. not just Yaku, but also his environment. You know, you are, you are manipulating his environment to, to move him around. Yeah. Um, so it has this, yeah, the, the pace is, for me, wonderfully satisfying because you get a variety 
of kind of movements and sensations, uh, which I'm finding now are quite hard to put into words. <laughs> uh, but that's part of what you were talking about earlier with programming. Like a lot of it is about the feel. Yeah. Right. Um, none of that is a question. Um, I'm interested to know, um, kind of like early on, what, did, did you go down any um, direction that turned out to be a dead end and you had to change your mind and go elsewhere? Any ideas you had to throw away? We've thrown away so much, but I don't think we've done any sort of, we haven't done a dramatic shift. I think the, the core idea was always sort of open world pinball. Yeah, but, but, then we, but we did, we did, um, did as, as far as like, the one thing I can point out in a, in a change of direction was sort of the, the egg prototype that we did, mm. uh, which was, we had this idea that we could do a, a vertical slice of the game or something like that, where we didn't have the adventure elements. Mm. Uh, we talked about releasing a version of that on, on iPhone or something, just to test, like, get a simple product out there and, and go through the process of, of finishing something mm. as a step stepping stone to finish the big thing. Um, so we thought that would be easy to just like okay let's keep the let's remove the adventure elements and just string pinball sequences together uh, and that's sort of when we ran into this kind of pacing problem uh, where the game it doesn't work uh, when we just string various uh, pinball puzzles together uh, in a section there's like we had we had the, uh, a tester coming in and he sat down and played the game and he had a cup of coffee in front of him and he constantly wanted to drink his coffee so he wanted to, to take a, pa a pause uh, with one hand picking up the coffee cup and take a sip but the game didn't let him there was no rest period or anything in the game because the ball was always in motion and there was also like three seconds away from where whenever he needed to press the button again so after that it's like yeah, we need to chill the whole thing down. Uh, so we had, like, for me, that was a direct, a, a pretty major direction change where we realized where we needed to go um, and realized that we couldn't build a, a, a s smaller section of the game with just pinball elements uh, because then it becomes something completely different than we envision. It wasn't the game that we wanted to make, Yeah, it turned out. So that was uh, that was fun, <laughs> <laughs> and and obviously we needed to iterate that, that this was before we had sort of discovered the the general formula for how pacing should work in our, in our game, uh, and also we didn't have the gameplay tools either to how to easily move the ball in and out of a level like all the the little tricks that we do with little we have little gates and we have all these little yeah. gameplay gizmos in there that that. Um, bridge any seams that might appear between uh, styles of gameplay or pacing. So, yeah. have so you, you have to come up with these ideas that perhaps visually and mechanically make sense within the context of pinball, even though they would never appear in a real pinball table. Yes. So it's a new little language of uh, things that we, that we put in there, mm -hmm. little wrenches and hammers and things. So that's not what it is, but it's you know, different tools for us to... And I think that context is important as well, because al although there are um, dialogue, dialogue boxes in this game that introduce uh, new concepts to you as you acquire a power-up, for example, I think a, a lot of the game, um, like you mentioned Another World, which th mm -hmm. this does the same thing, a lot of the game is trying to communicate to the player just visually. Um, and you, 
and it's probably part of the puzzle solving actually is kind of looking at the environment and figuring out okay what does the game expect me to do yeah. at this point yeah we we have emphases and dialogues and there's some tutorial text in there as well but like the game needs to be able to be like a person who doesn't read anything should still be able to complete the game mm. they won't get the best experience but like it, they shouldn't be blocked from completing the game then it, you know that that's just bad mm. so yeah so that requires a discipline from both of you, I suppose, where you really have to think about the visual information that is on the screen. Um, you know, what when people see it, are they getting the, the right message that yeah. you intend for them to have? Yeah, and that's also, I, I think, especially for a game like this, you really have to let uh, all the gameplay critical items, they need to be visually most important. Like, there needs to be a very clear hierarchy of importance in the art. So I don't go nuts on some arty thing that I think looks really cool, but it doesn't really support gameplay. So it, it always needs to support gameplay first, I think, especially in the in the action sequences where you have uh, you need quick reactions and you need to be able to read the image uh, really fast and know what's going on. But then, of course, we have the adventure sections for, for more scenic moments and things like that. So I get to have free reign on those. You get to play around on I those. Get to play around, yeah. <laughs> and the that process of moving from, uh, as you were saying, the kind of prototype version, which was quite intense arcade action with no moment to drink a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. to what you have now, which is a, a varied pace um, adventure game, that, which certainly to me fits into that Metroidvania camp mm -hmm. of being a, a, a world to explore and backtrack a little and acquire power-ups that then allow you to progress mm -hmm. further. Um, so were you guys Metroidvania fans before this, or was it just something that developed through you know, the, the natural road that the game design took you down? Both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, I'm a huge fan of Metroidvania-style design uh, in the more broader definition of it. Uh, I think though, like the Metroidvania style design came a little bit too late for me to really be impactful for yeah. me as a designer. Like all the, the games that really influenced me were older than the Metroidvanias. But Metroidvanias has just a lot of good design ideas in them, I think. Um, I really like having like the, the open spaces, like uh, we joking say open world pinball, but like just having a world that you can explore and, and make choices in what direction to go in and stuff like that. And I think Metroidvanias is a very good take on on a semi-open, semi-limited mm. version of a world like that, uh, especially in 2D. Um, so if you want to do an, an, an op side-scrolling open world game, Metroidvania is, is where you end up pretty much. I think they can be quite um, rewarding to play because when you know when you're playing well, you always feel like you're making progress. You get, yeah. to, you get to see a new area, you discover a secret, you master an ability. So you know mm -hmm. when when a good game in the genre of which I believe Yakuza is one of them, mm -hmm. of course, um, you yeah you you really feel a sense of satisfaction like with every piece of progress that you make. 
And you also get to set some of your own goals. You're not limited to, mm. like, you're not railroaded to do any one particular thing. And we kind of encourage that sort of exploratory nature. And I think uh, when we look at, we have a lot of testers playing the game. So we look at when they play and they, there's certainly a sense of, you know, happy sense of accomplishment when they, they set their own goals and they try try out something that they thought of. And, and we want to allow that as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's... That's also good design to let the player play the game as they want it to be played. Um, I think also like because we have this like we have Matthias doing the beautiful art. It's also uh, we want we don't want to like in a linear game you sort of block things off uh, based on difficulty and stuff like that. Like in a more open world, you can sort of expo- uh, explore use exploration as a gameplay and that's really rewarding when you have a very beautiful game uh, various different areas and it's like it's interesting to just even the, even in the situations where there's no new gameplay there's still a reward of getting to a new area because it's visually interesting yeah. um, so I think it lends itself really well to that as well that's good to hear but <laughs> I, I suppose um, concentrating on the visuals it's also worth noting the the setting and the character that you have in Yoku's Island Express. Um, so Yoku is a dung beetle. Yes. But he's also a postman. Yes, he has to have a job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you weren't you weren't merely satisfied to combine the genres of pinball and platform <laughs> game. You also wanted to combine uh, an unusual. Uh, element of nature not often seen in video games with a job not often seen in video games <laughs> so where did that come from um i think maybe kevin costner is somewhat to blame for this <laughs> for the male thing maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um oh, i don't quite recall so, exactly so for the, how we so the, the dying be like that didn't came come at the same time the male thing is fairly late in the development yeah. uh, the dying beetle was much earlier um, when we sort of realized that okay just having a ball is not that interesting we, we need to add something to we need to make a character out of it yeah. and then you came up with the idea of hey ball you know what pushes balls around time beetles <laughs> um, and initially he, d- he wasn't attached to the ball by a string that came later as well but mm. just having a dung beetle having a ball and there's a joke in there of course yeah. um, and it looks a little unusual with having him as a separate entity from not having the ball be the character I mean, th- mm. that's maybe the the, the weirdest <laughs> yeah, well I think also maybe what we've seen a little bit that's what's been done like characters that fall down into a ball and then they roll around which is a natural thing but this yeah, is yeah there was like Metroid Prime pinball yeah did that and Sonic spinball which I, I hear a lot of people comparing Yoku's yeah. to, but mm. you're right, that does make a difference. Yeah, And and that would definitely have been a weight for us to go as well, yeah, but sure. uh, I like the, the Dung Beetle idea yeah. quite a bit, because it's definitely underused in video games, <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a very interesting character, just it's, in general. And, it's got some and nice it, charm to it as well, because when the ball is flung around by the pinball mm-hmm. tables, Yoku himself is then dragged along with the ball by the string that he's attached to, so it's got a kind of physical comedy to it. Yeah, um, yeah, and and also that he's so small. I really like that. Mm. Like the the protagonist of the game is is tiny on the screen. Um, it's it's different. He's an unlikely hero. Yeah. 
So, and then the mail thing came way later on when we did an iteration on the story, and it's like, while we are at it, should we like find a better motivation for the main character? Why is he coming? Like, because in an in initial iteration, he, ju he just got stranded on, on the island, mm. and we took it from there. But uh, we had some issues in sort of giving a clear goal to the player, like from screen one. Yeah, this is so it's so convenient and easy to understand. You sort of get mm. why he's there. You get his job, and everybody likes the postman. That's the thing. Like everybody wants to deliver mail. Mailmen are really underused in video games as well. Like it's really interesting. It translates so well into game design. Like it gives you purpose. It gives you reason to visit all these different areas. It's it's an honor system built into being a mailman. Uh, of like the mail must be delivered. <laughs> kind of thing. So it, you have a built-in motivation that you don't have to explain. Uh, like a revenge story you have to explain, a love story you have to explain, a mail, mailman story, you got to deliver the mail. Everyone gets that. Yeah. So now might be a good time to go to some um, fan questions. Yes, let's. So um, about a week before we recorded this podcast, we... Um, we asked our fans on the internet um, to submit questions. We've got we've got a couple, got a small handful from some passionate fans. Um, let's go through them. So, Don Guri on Steam asks, uh, <laughs> "How many loot boxes do I need to buy <laughs> to unlock the golden ball?" Oh, the golden ball. That's gonna be that's expensive. That's expensive. You have to pay it, pay for it in. Car, cash actually to unlock I we I'm not sure where we ended up there but we might have a golden ball in the game yeah uh, I don't think Johanna has painted it yet but I think it's on some list somewhere yeah. but it's gonna be hard to come by yeah but you won't get it out of a loot box no. no just to be clear <laughs> there, are, there are no loot no. boxes and probably that question will Dates this recording to a particular moment <laughs> in video game time history. Place. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that is true. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Um, but there will be no loot boxes, but there may be, by the sound of it, opportunities to unlock extra bits and pieces, extra rewards. Yes. Yes. But not through your credit card, necessarily. No. <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> um, it's a good idea, though. Yeah, uh, maybe. maybe. Uh, hmm. Those guys are forward thinking. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. Maybe, maybe he's really, maybe he really wants some loot boxes. It's hard to. Can tell you ask him how much he would want to spend on a golden ball? <laughs> What's it worth? <laughs> we can do some market research yeah. and find out. Um, then on Facebook we had Chantal Catherine Lee, who um, asks, "When is the release, and how long does the game last?" Well, so let's skip the first question. Yeah. <laughs> I think all, all we can say at the moment on the release is that it's in 2018. Yes. Um, stay tuned to our social media channels for more information on that one. And ask us again when our publisher is not in the room. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, the, yeah, the follow-up question was, how long does the game last? How long is a piece of string? How long is a piece of string? Yeah, well, we've seen that it varies quite a bit depending on the player and your play style, but we've seen maybe between four to six hours. 
Yeah, four to five hours is usually my official response. Yeah. Uh, and that's for main game plus style of playing, like playing through the main story and doing a couple of the the side quests and some optional exploration and stuff. But there is more in there. Yeah. Um, so we leave a lot of content optional. Yeah. Still. So. So there's a lot of more to explore, which takes like to hundred percent the game. You are probably up in eight to twelve hours or something like that. Yeah. I'm really anticipating that there may also be a speedrunning community that grows around this game. We really hope so. Like there, that's that's an angle that we do intend to explore. Um, to be, there's like Metroidvanias are really good for for speedrunning, and and our game should be fairly well suited to to do that. So we want to make make encourage that in however we can. It'd be interesting to see, especially in the speedrunning community, sometimes. Uh, people in that community play your game so much that they discover things that maybe even the designers didn't even know were possible. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm may, sure they may, will. Maybe <laughs> might keep you up at night worrying. <laughs> no, we, we sort of hope that will happen. Yeah. As long as, like, I guess you can patch it nowadays, but as long as they don't find, like, a glitch that takes you to the... It can flip all the, the way to the, the end of the, the game. credits all the way. That's no fun. But, like, sequence breaking, breaking is part of, of Metroidvania... Yeah. design so it should be possible mm. yeah, we're trying to accommodate for for that stuff in the design so it, it doesn't the game doesn't doesn't have to break just because it's a little bit sort of sequence broken and, or and whenever we see a tester sequence break like do stuff we don't intend on them to do we usually f mostly we've fixed that the the way they could sort of shortcut through an, uh, a section, but we also fix sort of uh, the problems that become, if someone else would figure out to do the same thing, it should still work. So the game doesn't break down just because you find a, a really mm. crazy shortcut. And, and honestly, the way some of our gameplay mechanics are implemented, like the slugs, mm. it's going to be really hard for us to, to catch all the, the ways people can be creative of of getting through the island yeah. yeah because they're gonna be able to end up in places that we didn't think about yeah i'm sure so we need to have a really robust yeah, like a catch-all system to to accommodate for all the yeah. weird things that can happen good luck <laughs> <laughs> um so with gaming on twitter asks do you have a favorite pinball table um like a physical one i think the one that i play the most is mars attacks but out of the oh, good. out of the the digital ones the one i play the most there is probably the nightmare table on pinball dreams oh i didn't like the nightmare table that was like the, beat, they, the they released that table. they released that as a time capped five minute demo oh that's right released, and i yeah, played yeah. that one <laughs> like um of hours and hours so that's why it's your favorite Maybe I don't know. I can't really separate sort of the, the, the what I felt playing that from how it compared to the other yeah. games that I played. So mm. that was the big moment. That's so. the one that sticks in your memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah for and sure. Yeah, for me, digitally it was the beatbox level of, of Pinball Dreams. Mm -hmm. uh, physically, we had at Starbase we had a couple of pinball like pinball tables, mm. physical ones. Uh, we had the Twilight Zone. It was really good. We had one. I think that was my favorite. I'm not sure if I remember the name or it was Whirlpool or Whitewater or something, something. Um, anyway, it was really good. Um, and then I really like Arabian Nights. 
Uh, the, the actual pinball. The pinball, table. yes. Is that a bally table? I have no idea. Yeah, neither do I. It's the only pinball. Who looks at the publisher's <laughs> name? <laughs> Everybody looks at the publisher's <laughs> name, of course. Um, do you, have you ever worked with or do you personally know anyone who would have worked on Pinball Dreams, you know, being part of the Swedish games industry? Uh, I've met some of them. I don't know them. You're not, yeah, not pals. I don't, know, I don't know them either. Yeah. Met them in the bar. That's not <laughs> for you. Yeah. So you haven't picked up any um, like professional advice from from the original, or, yeah, from the people. masters. Uh, no, no, I don't know. And yeah. we're going at this. You've learned alone. it all. Oh yeah. By by doing. By by sheer arrogance, we're going at it. So. <laughs> so. We've got two more questions here, but they're, they're kind of related, so let's ask them together. So there's Raksun on Twitter, who asks, why insects? And Zachary, also on Twitter, what exactly is Yoku's ball made from? Mm. Well, the dung beetle, the African dung beetle, is, uh, uses, uh, pushes a ball of dung for its eggs. Uh, but why insects? I mean, insects are cool. Why not? Why not insects? Mm. Yeah, um, I, I think we touched on that, like the, the dung beetle is a cool, really cool creature. Yeah, if you start reading about creatures like that, it, it's really fascinating. But we, we could do more about the sort of the dung beetle aspect of him. Like Maybe. the way they, they navigate by starlight and yeah, they do all kinds of crazy stuff. So the, the offspring of the dung beetle grow up in the ball, if I remember correctly. Yes. So that gave us the idea oh. as well that, that you, Yoko actually lives inside his ball, uh, which I think we are still... Yeah, it's definitely not... not in there. <laughs> so he actually lives inside his ball. Um, we're thinking of that as sorry, almost like an alternative space. We, we are not doing anything with it in the game, maybe for the sequels. Yeah. Um, but that's his, like... Uh, I find it kind of interesting that it's, it's his house that he's rolling around mm. as well. Uh, so that's why he's moving it. Like, why is he carrying around in, carrying around this ball all the time? Mm. It's his house. So it's, it's not his dung, either. Too well, the, the, the <laughs> dung. Um, <laughs> he's a dung beetle, so it's probably dung, but it doesn't really look like dung. No, mm. it looks more like a polished <laughs> version of it, maybe. I think there's a saying about that. There is a saying about that. Yeah, but it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are, yeah. I think we'll leave it to that. Yes, yeah. I think that's a good conclusion to that question. <laughs> and it's probably a question we're going to keep hearing over and over again for for a while. And maybe there's an answer to it in the game as well. I'm not sure. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for your time. Thank for you. For talking about your history in games and for Yoku's Island Express. Thank you. If anyone wants to hear more about Yoku's, then we're on Twitter at Yoku Game. Or on Facebook, Yoku Game. Um, you can come talk to us on Discord, discord.gg slash team17. You guys want, on Twitter, do you want to share your Twitter handles? Sure. I'm not, not you? on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm barely on Twitter, but my my Twitter username is lard with two L's in the beginning, L-L-E-R-D. Cool, so that's, that's where you can find Jens and uh, talk to him about dung beetles and programming. Indeed. And uh, I'll, I'm incognito almost these days. <laughs> I'm buried under email and not very present. Matthias, <laughs> you'll have this game to is done. walk the streets of Stockholm and <laughs> just randomly ask people, are you Matthias? Yeah. 
And maybe some people will say yes, but they won't be him. <laughs> Quite a lot of people will say yes. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, that's it for now. I don't know who will be on the next episode, but I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, we're back. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, I enjoyed the discussion definitely about a year ago now, actually, that that interview took place. Um, so it's nice for me to listen back to it. I really do hope that you enjoyed the interview, and I'd definitely be interested in hearing your feedback, good, bad, otherwise. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, this interview is part of a an experimental series um, we do have some other interviews in the can with other Team 17 developers and if you liked what you've heard today then let me know because there are others that we can release and I, I think, uh, well I hope that there may be uh, some interest there for you um, but there's there's no real point unless there's an audience uh, so definitely do let me know or if you have feedback then send that feedback our way uh, you know, let us know what we can do better uh, I'm not really a, a podcast expert, as you can probably tell from listening to this. It'd be great to hear your feedback. So you can do that by emailing community at team17.com or tweeting us at team17limited. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at team17 or on our Discord channel. Uh, head to the Team17 Twitter and you'll find a link there. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed listening to this interview, if you've played Yaku's Island Express and you, you've enjoyed what you've played, uh, please do vote for it in the Game Awards at thegameawards.com. There's, uh, there's just a few days left at the time of recording to cast your vote. Uh, if you haven't played it, there's a demo available. You can find a demo on Steam, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, PlayStation 4, uh, basically every format that the game is available on. You'll find a demo. Give it a go. It's like the first 45 minutes of the game, and I really think you'll you'll love it. And you've got very little to lose. Give it a go. See what you think. Um, that's it for now. Maybe I'll get to do another one of these in the future, and then you'll hear my voice again. But until then, cheerio.